Ecclesiastes 3. For everything, there's a season and a time for every matter under heaven, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to moon and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given the children of men to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in his time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart. Yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better than them to be joyful and to do, to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to men. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness, and in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happened to the children of men and what happened to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beast, for all is vanity. All go to one place, all are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? This is the word of God. Any of you who have ever practiced a musical instrument have likely worked with a metronome. A metronome is a device that helps us with rhythm and time. It gives a, a beep or a, a pulse or a tick or a click. And it's very useful uh, for a number of reasons, but one is that music carries so much emotion with it. And emotion can be um, sort of uh, expressed through rhythm but it could also be expressed in various ways in music. And, and because of that, sometimes if there's a, in, in a particular piece of music, if there's a time of intensifying and maybe joy and excitement, a temptation for many musicians will be to speed up. And sometimes you don't want to do that. And so practicing with the metronome allows you to realize that you need to be pulled back and stay the course. And so it's very helpful in terms of keeping us oriented, but it becomes more important 
um, once you're getting groups of musicians to work together, because if each of them have, have learned to, to manage time well, then they could play in sync. And with, with smaller groups, a rock band of three or four people or a string quartet, you know, typically when they perform, they don't use a metronome. But for larger groups, you know, if some, of the, some of these pop shows will have 10 musicians on stage. Often people have an earpiece in with a click or at least the drummer might. Or for an orchestra, uh, the conductor does a variety of things. But one thing is just to make sure that people are staying with the pulse to make sure that everybody is in sync. And, and what happens is if, if one person gets carried away with their emotions and speeds up or sort of falls back, sometimes you could hear it. That 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 it, things get a little bit noisy, but sometimes you don't hear it, but you feel it. You feel that that something is just not right. There's a new tension that's there because things are are, are stretching out rather than staying together. I'm opening talking about that because from the perspective of the Bible, one of the images is that we're to walk with God, and it's almost as if there's meant to be a sort of pace in life. <laughs> where we walk with God and yet the picture of humanity is that we run ahead away from God or we just stop and we give up. And we're, we're called to learn in life, to, to be faithful. And this becomes more important, not simply for our individual spiritual devotional lives, but if we want to uh, do life with other people. And what happens is if everyone sort of goes their own way or gets off, tensions are created, things unravel uh, and, and, Therefore, um, this concept of time that I'm talking about is one of the ways that we can understand pacing the Christian life because we have this poem. Now, I'm not going to talk a lot about that. The first eight verses of the passage that was read this morning are probably the most famous passage in the book. And just because we're doing one chapter at a time and I'm trying to take on bigger chunks, I don't have time to really go into the details, but it's this wonderful, beautiful poem. But, but it communicates to us uh, these times and seasons, that's how verse one opens for everything. There's a time and a season. And there are these contrasts, the time to be born, the time to die, the time for peace, the time for war. And so life is almost like those old metronomes that would click back and forth. And, and to be wise and to be faithful, we need to be prepared to live in all kinds of times and seasons. That's one of the implications of how this book will help us to be wise. But because this is a poem, it communicates not only with the words, which most of our Bible studies were going through trying to, to look at the meaning of the sayings, but poetry communicates through sound. And even in Hebrew, uh, which this was written, there, there's a pulse, there's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, a time to kill, a time to... You could keep going, it almost doesn't matter what the words are, but the, the time is there, there's this clicking, there's this ticking. Um, and so for modern people, we think of the clock as how we measure time, or maybe in the musical example, the metronome. This is an ancient document. There was no metronome as we know it now. There was no clock. And yet the very creation stories and uh, Genesis 1, God puts the sun and the moon in, in, the, in the sky to, to mark time. There's morning and evening. There's day and night. But there's also seasons. There's something about human existence that, that we're meant to be in, in sync with this world. Um, and wisdom is about discerning things and knowing, knowing what it looks like to live in any given time. But it's not just that it's outside of us. We don't have the clock. We don't have the metronome in, in the ancient writing. Um, but there it is in verse 11. He has put eternity into man's heart. Uh, humanity has time built in. Now, there's this sense of past and present uh, 
But there's also one of the problems that he's grappling with is, but we, we only know so far back and we don't know too much beyond what we could imagine in the future. And so this, this being created for eternity um, is one of the wonderful things about humanity and human experience, but it's also an actual major source of stress um, because we don't manage our time well. We're not in, in sync with things. And so uh, this sense of past and present makes humanity unique in the creation in that it creates the potential for us to build and to grow. So unlike in the animal kingdom, and I don't know about the cognitive world of animals, but they're probably not thinking generations past uh, as we do, whereas most university classes build on at least the last 50 or 100 years, if not hundreds of years of political thought, of scientific research, of philosophical deliberation. There's something about humanity that we, we don't exist just in our moment, but we have this sense of the past. And the hopefulness is we could learn and we could evaluate and we could study, and then we could anticipate the future. And so we could solve problems and, and cure diseases. Uh, what happens, of course, though, is there are times of, of building up and of life and peace and, and where wisdom is expressed. But the reality is, if there are times of peace, there are also times of war. If there's times of gathering, there's also times of scattering. And what happens is that for all of the wisdom that we reflect on, and in our generation, use our work, our gifts, our abilities to anticipate the future, unique in creation, there are these major setbacks. And so just as we have this educated group virtuous, philosophical, musical, um, building society, we break out into a world war. And then it makes you wonder, is, is everything futile? No matter what we've done, have we not learned that you don't do this? And why is it that, that the pendulum keeps going back and forth? Why are we not making progress and saying, now we're predominantly dealing with life and not death? We're really dealing with birth. Um, that's part of the problem for the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. We call him Koheleth. For him, time is not simply this wonderful thing, but, but he's looking at the world and realizing, uh, and that's verse nine, what gain has the worker from his toil? This is one of the themes. Work is hard, but work is worth it if at the end we've made things better. But you build something, and then at some point it gets torn down, and you start to wonder, was it worth devoting my time to? And so this poem is beautiful, and it does remind you in those low seasons it will likely swing back. But Koheleth is saying, but in those high seasons, it will also swing back. And this is troubling. And so we have in this passage, if you look at the whole chapter, chapter echoes of the book of Genesis. And as we're looking at Ecclesiastes, I'm saying there's a, the Christian story gets fulfilled that helps us to understand the, the resolution of some of the struggles of this particular book. But there's a trajectory set in the book of Genesis. And so, so this, this poem, the first eight verses about time, the next two sections have a near correspondence with the positive and the negative. Uh, so verses 9 to 15 are have a tone of the more life-giving, the, the good. And verses 16 to 22 feel more on the, the death and the, the separating out and the, the tearing down. And if you look at the opening chapters of the Bible, one of the things I've been saying is Genesis 1 tells one story. And it's a story of forming um, uh, good things out of chaos and and separating and dividing and coordinating so that the work of God is perceived as productive and good. That's the, the key refrain in Genesis 1. It was good. It was good. And then it reaches, it was very good. 
And you see echoes of that in verses 9 to 15. God thinks, makes things beautiful in their time. He puts eternity on their hearts. God gives so that there's joy. And yet verses 16 to 22 have more of the feel of the experience of life in this world. Um, there's injustice. There's wickedness in the place of righteousness. And Genesis 2 through 4 tells that story where in Genesis 2, for the first time we hear it is not good for the man to be alone. That, that not good is almost ominous. It's, it's giving us a, a sense of where the story is going. Genesis 2 ends, they were naked and they were not ashamed. And there's a story of God forming humanity from the dust of the earth and breathing life into him and feeding him and putting him in a garden. And yet Genesis 3 is about deception. And there's an unraveling that then plays itself out. So in the place of righteousness and justice, there's wickedness. And, and if, 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 if it's hard to fathom for you how eating fruit from a tree could be a picture of something problematic and terrible, go to Genesis 4, where the, the cycle continues. The, the temptation and the giving in happens between Cain and Abel, where Cain kills his brother. The first children, there's violence. They're now out of the paradise and they're in the world. And in the place of justice and righteousness, there's wickedness. And it's disorienting. So whenever that happens, those are confusing times. So, so when there's a time for building up and a time for life and a time for gathering and celebrating, we don't think about time. And we, we, we experience a, a glimpse of the eternity on our hearts where things seem right. But it's, it's when things go wrong. It's when we experience sickness and illness. It's when there's crime. It's when there's corruption. That all of a sudden we start to get aware that we're out of sync and in the distance of time, something went wrong and will it ever be made right? And if we exist between those two realities, which is much of life, all of a sudden we drag. And, and we have these two realities, the good and the evil. And there's Genesis 1 and then there's Genesis 2 through 4. Um, and we, we see that a little bit in this passage. And so as we enter into the passage, where I want to begin is in the problematic side, <laughs> verses 16 to the end. And one of the things we learn there is that in the midst of these times and seasons, there's a time and season for everything, in the midst of the, the problems, one of the ways that, that the writer of this book reflects on it theologically is he, he says that he discerns in his heart that God is testing humanity. And so that, I'm going to spend some time talking about that. So verse 16, I saw that under the sun, in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. In the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. Um, that creates a problem for any of us, whether it's happening to us or whether we're able to have our own life that's going relatively well, but we look out and we see that for others, it's not. How do we make sense of that? In verse 18, he says, I said in my heart, with regard to the children of man, that God is testing them, that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. One of the things in these times and seasons is, is in these negative seasons, the seasons of unraveling, of suffering, there's something inherently humbling. And the idea of testing here, this is not exactly the way that we do testing today, like a driver's license exam or a final exam for something, although that's certainly um, instructive. But when we think of God testing us, we think, you know, God's going to give us a test. And if we measure up, he will reward us. And if we don't, he will punish us. And it's not that that's entirely wrong. But if you understand that to be the center, then it's, 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 a, it's a misunderstanding that will lead to a lot of problems. Testing here probably has more of a sense of refining. Uh, God is testing. He's, um, he's putting pressure on, on at times in, in, in the world where then the, the truth comes out. 
and and what what doesn't belong uh, is let go of. And and the book of Ecclesiastes here is not answering the question of why do bad things happen. This is not meant to be an answer to make sense of it. He's trying to say, as I'm seeing this happen, what do I learn from it? And so he he recognizes that God tests humanity. And so in that sense, if you think of the way we do testing today, like in our education system, uh, a a test can be purifying. It could be refining. You study a a mathematical concept, a a formula, and you think you know it. And this is one of the problems in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, The more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know what you don't know. And it's sometimes people that are proudful, they think they've studied enough and then they show up and, and I've memorized the formula and I've practiced it a couple of times and now I think I know it. Well, in the test, it becomes exposed that you didn't know it as well as you think you did. And there's something humbling about that, but it's, it's good for you if the goal is education, if the goal is to learn the concept. And so now you know with clarity, you didn't know it as well as you did, uh, as well as you thought you did. Now you know, um, specific areas that you need to study. So this is good, isn't it? Except most of us know that that an education system has as a goal of educating, but we're not there simply to learn. We're there to, to prepare for a career, or we're there so that we can show our parents that they can be proud of us, or we're there in our competitive sense uh, among our peers to show that, that we could rise to the top and be better than them. And what happens is when we get a negative grade, rather than saying, okay, this is hard, this is disappointing, this gives me work. Um, if we can say, but my goal is to learn so that I will have a career. My goal is to learn so that my parents will be proud. Instead, we realize the goal of learning really isn't there. The learning is just a means to the career. The, the learning is just the, the thing that will make us feel better about ourselves. And therefore, we're overwhelmed and we're crushed. Testing can make you better, but testing can be overwhelming and discouraging if you're not doing well and if your goal is not to learn. So it raises the question, what is it you want from life? Um, I don't know why there are these difficult seasons, but, but there is a biblical theme of, of God refining people, of, of improving us, of making us better, of, of helping us to see where we're failing and, and when you live by faith, that brings us to a resting place where we grow and we learn and we reflect. But the problem is most of us think our faith is sufficiently strong and then life tests it and exposes that our faith is weaker than we assumed. And these are very difficult periods, but the question is, but are, are they good periods? <laughs> um, well, we're gonna learn new things about ourselves and we're gonna learn about our weakness. And, and in this passage, it's not simply that tests us, but God shows us the need for humility. Verse 18, he tests us so that they would see that we ourselves are but beasts. Um, God puts eternity on our hearts. And so human beings are are, are different from the animals in a variety of ways. We have language skills. uh, There's a number of things we can do, but our sense of past and present makes us uh, to be on this earth like God in terms of we can oversee and we can build and we can do good. And yet these times of struggle reveal to us that we're actually not very different than the animals. We, we build it, we talk a lot morally in society about what we want for people to be good and, and how we're convicted about right and we stand against what's wrong. And we talk about how we're gonna be kind and generous and all of these things that humans in, intuitively aspire to. And then in difficult seasons, we find, oh, I'm not generous because of a generous heart. I just had more than I needed <laughs> and I didn't feel the cost of generosity. It's not that I'm moral. It's that when things were going well, I had the freedom to not have to stand up for anything, but but now what's coming out is not my, 
my virtue, but my impatience and my selfishness and my anger. And so there's a sense in which these hard times and seasons are very humbling because they show that unlike God, who in his wisdom and power is steadfast and unchanging, we quickly change with the seasons. Yes, we're nice when people are doing us favors, but what happens when people are against us? Will we love them? And we find that we're creatures of instinct, like the animals who, who, who have instincts to, to eat and to reproduce, and they're, they're maybe not concerned about what's happening on another continent or what will happen in the upcoming months for other people. And so this period of being humbled uh, is indeed very difficult for us. And we, and we, we see that that's part of the, the story of Genesis 2 through 4. Genesis 1 uh, climaxes. God is making everything. And the climactic moment is he makes humanity, Adam and Eve, humanity in his image and likeness. And, and there's a, a sense there that, that humanity is to imitate God in this world in the same way that God exercised his power in Genesis 1 with wisdom and goodness. Now humanity is to be like God in the world for the sake of the animals, for the sake of the trees, for the sake of creation. That's our calling. Genesis 2 to 4 shows the unraveling. And so the story is that humanity is made from humble uh, beginnings. You know, uh, Adam formed from the dust and God breathes the, the breath, the ruach, that's the Hebrew word, the spirit into him. And, and if you read Genesis 2, the first time we hear that something's not good, it's about Adam's loneliness. Um, he wants companionship and also God wants human, uh, humanity. And so in Genesis 2, he looks for an appropriate helper, a partner in life in all of the created order. He may have looked at the fruit trees. We don't know about that. But he looks at the various animals, and none of them are sufficient to share life with. There's something there, a lesson about distinguishing that human beings are of a different type of being, being made in God's image. We, we have a different role, a different way of being in the world. And uh, we're naked and not ashamed, whereas animals don't clothe themselves, but they're not self-conscious about it. There's something about humanity that's meant to be vulnerable and open and to, to be seen. And then in Genesis 3, we read the story with the serpent. And so here you have the voice of God who gave Adam and Eve instructions. What are the trees for? They're for your blessing, for your good. They taste good. They give you life. But there's the one tree you shouldn't eat from. A serpent comes and says, well, let's think together whether or not eating might be beneficial to you. Maybe you could become like God. Now, at this point, Adam and Eve could listen to God or Adam and Eve could listen to something within creation, an animal. And they don't trust God and they're deceived because they've, they've misunderstood the fruit tree is not to make you more like God. God already made you like him in his image. The fruit tree is to be enjoyed. <laughs> so you give thanks to God and then you work for more fruit trees to fill the earth with them. They were deceived by one of the created things. And then what happens is they become self-conscious. They're aware that they're naked and ashamed. God walks through the garden and asks, where are you? And they've covered themselves with leaves. <laughs> they're very tree that they thought would make them more like God. And now they're, they're sitting there covered with leaves. How's that going to go? Uh, the first rainstorm, is that going to keep them covered? So God needs to send them out of the, the garden. And in the language of this passage, Ecclesiastes uh, 3, in Genesis 2, from the dust they are formed. And here we read uh, Kohelet's problem is that how is humanity different from the animals? Because we come from the dust and we return to the dust. We are given breath and then our, our breath is exhaled and ceases. How are we any different? How are we any better? 
Genesis 2, God forms them from the dust. Genesis 3, God announces, you were from the dust, but to the dust you'll return. They go out into the world, and their task was to invite the world into the garden so that the whole of creation would come into God's presence. Instead, they go out of God's presence into the world, and God is kind to them. Instead of going out covered with leaves, uh, he gives them animal skins, so they're not ashamed in their nakedness. But keep in mind, there's a shift of what happens. <laughs> they were placed in the garden in God's image, in his likeness. And then they go out of the garden in the likeness of the animals. They're covered. You don't, you don't see the glory of God's virtue and attributes in them. You smell the smells of the animals on Adam and Eve. And then what happens is that the first man returns to the dust when Cain kills his brother Abel. And he acts like a predatorial animal, offering his brother as if his brother would be an acceptable sacrifice to please God. And that cycle repeats. I'll just give one example briefly, the story of, of Jacob, uh, whose name changes to Israel, and he becomes the father of these glorious nations. But, but so long as he's named Jacob, there's, some, there's echoes of the serpent. There's a craftiness to him in the way he conducts himself. And his brother Esau, he swindles him, Esau, comes out from hunting and is hungry. And Jacob swindles him by taking advantage of his hunger by, by saying, I will cook you food and give you food while you're starving if you give me your birthright, your inheritance. And Esau should have not been like an, a creature of instinct, but he should have recognized the, the, the past and the future and held on to that and dealt with today's hunger. But instead he, he showed that he was but a beast, a hungry person who's gonna want to be fed first. And Jacob swindles him. And then Jacob's going to swindle his own father, Isaac, who's old and can't see and is about to die. And he wants the blessing intended for Esau. What does he need to do? Well, Esau is a man of the field, a hunter. Uh, he needs to kill some animals, put the skins on himself. So when he walks in, his blind father will, will say, this smells like Esau. This feels like Esau. What's happening? <laughs> um, the one from whom kings are supposed to descend winds up deceiving his own father by, by going in the likeness of an animal, of, of being like Esau. And, and there's this sense in which that cycle keeps repeating in history that human beings have the potential for such greatness. And God still works through our weakness. But in times of testing, we reveal that at the end of the day, our, our desires rule over us. And therefore, we don't rule over creation with virtue and goodness, but creation rules over us. And so um, in this testing, uh, where, where we find that in this passage, there are seasons that are difficult. Now, right now we're in a difficult season. Uh, so there's a time to be born, there's a time to die. Uh, people are dying all the time, but, but COVID has brought to light 200,000 plus just within our own country. Uh, there's a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. That probably has more to do with anger and, and war but here we are, that we're in this extended time of not embracing. And so things could be worse than they are now, but things are bad enough that there's an unraveling in that pace. Are we walking individually or as a society with God? And we're finding that, that now the season is showing that life is harder and we're turning against one another. This is not a time of building up, but this is a time of polarization and division. And the opportunity we have in the midst of this is, is to learn that in God's testing, we would be humbled. And, and if your goal 
is to be the greatest person who ever lived. If it's to make a lot of money, it's to be, if it's to be comfortable, if it's to have people like you, seasons like this are utterly devastating. But if you have an awareness that, that God sets before you the possibility of being conformed to the image of Christ, of becoming like him, this is not an answer to say that, that suffering is good or that you'll enjoy it. But it's to say, but within the midst of this, you are being called on to, to draw out of yourself the very aspects of the eternal life that God could put in you. And will you rise to, to showing goodness and wisdom and kindness, or will you succumb? And what happens is we succumb, and therefore it's very humbling. And in that very difficult period, um, we can be very discouraged, um, but there are times and seasons for everything. And part of spiritual growth is to wisely engage seasons of discouragement. And so I just want to pause there to say, look, um, all of life, whether it's on a global scale, like what's happening now with COVID or whether it's as individuals are losing a job are having an illness, uh, are having some, a, a friend betray us, whatever it is, there are times and seasons for everything. And, and we don't look forward to the negative seasons, but, but if we're thinking theologically, we recognize in the midst of it, God is calling us to, to live a certain way. And so, so as you see that apart from him, you are weak, you don't have the answers, as God is testing you, um, respond with faith, to trust him and to lean on him and to, to walk with him, to get back in sync. If you've gotten ahead or if you've fallen behind, uh, those are the times that we need to, to get with God. So where I want to go next is, is I've talked about God testing us, but now I want to talk about God giving to us. Because that, I think, is the opportunity for us to see in this passage is that in all seasons, there, there is ahead of us good because that's God's design. And one of the interesting things about the, the, the result of what happens within us when God tests us is rather than humbly receiving the wisdom and the lesson and rising faithfully to the specific calling of God giving us work to do in a hard situation, in our pride, we imitate Adam of saying, rather than trusting and leaning on God, I, I, I want to go off and, and and, and be sort of a God for myself, inevitably at some point, most of us find ourselves saying, rather than I'm being tested by God, of experiencing these seasons as the opportunity that we should test God. And so instead of saying, I'm now seeing my own weakness, I'm seeing I, I don't control things, uh, the, the, I don't understand everything, and this is confusing, so Lord, teach me and help me. What we often do instead is we test God, Lord, if you were wise, <laughs> You wouldn't do things this way. Lord, if you loved me, why would you allow this to happen? These are the questions every one of us asks at some point in life. And, and what is it about us that difficult seasons, rather than refining us, lead us to test God to think, I don't know that, that God is worthy of my conception of God. I don't know that God is worthy of my devotion because maybe my life in future would be better if I just go off on my own. And the, the reason that Ecclesiastes is such a helpful book is because we have somebody who says, I tried everything. I had prosperity. I had power. I had pleasure. Uh, I had wisdom. I had all of these things. And I'm reporting back and saying, at the end of the day, I reached our limit. The, the, the depth is always more than I can see and understand. And so, so he goes ahead and, and says, if you, if you think that apart from God, you'll figure it out, you'll be better. Uh, he leaves us with a question. And, and so... Um, it, Verse 22, our reading ends with a question, who can bring him to see what will be after him? 
that's, that's part of his grappling. He's been very honest looking at life and death and work and futility and our struggles. And he doesn't have an answer for us. He has a question. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? And that question in the book of Ecclesiastes and in the Bible leads us towards the solution because the answer is uh, we can't answer this ourselves. We, we need somebody to tell us. So who can do it? Well, well, the implication is, well, only God can. And so, so the Christian story is that God does come and tell us and that the passage FT referred to together in Mark is a great example of Jesus coming and saying, the time has come for things to be fulfilled. Um, God's purpose is not to leave us confused so he can manipulate us. It's, it's always been to bless and to give. And yet we're so easily confused because we, we don't trust him. And we think we know more than we know. And when we're humbled, we can return. But we always have to return on that basis. Who, who can show me? Is death the end as far as we can observe? Is there anything more than that? Because how can we conquer death? That's one of the, the challenges of this book. And so in verse 14 and 15, he says, I perceived whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that people fear before him. That which is already has been, that which is to be already has been, and God seeks what has been driven away. Um, he has a theology of God's unchanging sovereignty, but he's not comforted by it. You need to know that. He's basically saying God has a mysterious plan that I know nothing about. And yet God has given us the ability and the talent to work hard. And so that's our task. And yet all of the hard work that we're doing, it's unproductive. Generations come, generations go. And so, so not knowing what God is up to leaves him discouraged as all he knows is what we're up to leaves us feeling like everything's futile. But I think there's a hint of, of why God's unchanging nature, once we get a window into something of his plan, actually changes the reality that rather than being people that are blown by the wind up and down, we actually have something that anchors us. When we move from thinking the greatest hope is that I can change the world to realize that, that even if I find that I can't, I can trust that, that all of my failures won't change God's good purposes. But it takes a while to get there. The writer of Ecclesiastes is not quite there yet. But there's a hint there in verse 15 when he said, God seeks after what has been driven away. Kind of a hard uh, sentence to translate out of Hebrew. I don't know exactly what he's talking about. Is he, is he seeking the past that, that, that we've already done things and we can't fix them, we can't change them? Does God redeem them? Is he talking about people? And so that's the Genesis 3 imagery. God has sent us away from his presence. Is this saying, but God will seek after those who, whom he has driven away? I, I don't know what Koheleth means, but I know that when, God's, when the Father sends Jesus Christ, he sends him to seek after. <laughs> he sends him to be one who would redeem our past. He does send Jesus to be somebody who will make known that the plan of God is to call those who have been cast away to return. And so as Christians, we could read this to say, who knows what will be after us? Well, the Lord knows, and the Lord has not only told us, but he's shown us. He sends Jesus into the world. But there's a confrontation because whenever the truth comes, it tests us. <laughs> We're going to find out who are we in relation to the truth, in relation to God. And so Jesus comes, and rather than being received with honor and thanks, we don't know what to do with him. So we like certain things, but we don't like certain things. And we find that, that Jesus himself is tested. He goes into the wilderness where Satan appears to him and offers him power and comfort and control. 
And he shows that he's not like one of the creatures of the earth who acts on his instincts out of his desires. He's starving because he's fasting, but he won't use his power to turn the stones into bread for himself, but he will use it to heal the blind. And so when Jesus is tested, he shows that, that he's not like Adam. He's not like Cain. He's not like Jacob. He's not like me. He's not like you. When he's tested, we see that he's like God. But then if we're going to allow that reality to test us back, what does it look like? What do we do with Jesus as we say, what sign do you have to, th to authenticate this? We know that we saw these last two miracles, but what's the next miracle that will really convince me? What do we do with Jesus that he winds up being crucified? Um, when we're crucifying a human being who's made in God's image, what are we doing? There's a sense in which we're treating them like an animal like a created being that we have power and control over. And yet Jesus's interpretation as he comes and, and he says, he's the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When Jesus goes to the cross, he's not simply showing us that we are but beasts, <laughs> but he's showing us that where we wouldn't humble ourselves and return to God, God humbled himself, taking the form of a created being. And in that, laying down his life, that, that we would treat him as though he was an animal to kill. We would shed his blood as though we could sacrifice him. And yet somehow in that, there would be a reversal. The, the problem for Koheleth is, is in the place of righteousness, there is wickedness. What the gospel does is it points us to Jesus and says, now look, in the place of the wicked, there is the righteous. In the place of the wicked, there is the just. And that's what the gospel is, that God comes in our place and does for us what we cannot do. And he, he calls back the, those who have wandered and he redeems those who have broken the past. And it's that answer that Koheleth doesn't have that we have because of the gospel. And it changes things. It says that, yeah, there are times and seasons, but, but now the original calling of humanity, even in the midst of this broken world, we can keep working to fulfill it, that we can be like God in this world rather than simply settling to be people who hunger and thirst and want to reproduce and will fight off anybody who gets in our way. There's a better way. And so um, in verse 12, you know, the, the picture coming out of this Genesis 1 kind of idea, I perceive there's nothing better than them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. If that's not a job description for the human being, be joyful and do good as long as you live. And also that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in his toil. This is God's gift to man. See, the trees in the garden were given to man to receive with thanks and to enjoy. And man thought, maybe I could use this tree to do something even better. And God is showing us, you don't have to, to earn your salvation. You don't have to create a life. I've given you life. I've breathed breath into you. And so take what I've given you and use it wisely and pursue joy and do good. And there are times and seasons, there are times that it will be natural and it will happen. And there are times that it won't. And, and, and this is not call it, call it causing, calling us to something superficial, which is when you're suffering, deny it, because the Bible gives us the language of lament and of crying out and of interceding. But it says, if you live by faith in the midst of those moments, you can, you can live out of goodness. Don't be taken over by your instincts as the animals are. But what good can you do in the midst of this? And you do that knowing 
that if I do that at the end of this, that there will be joy. I will look back with satisfaction and thankfulness that I didn't take the things God has given me and use them against others for my advantage, but I actually did good because there's joy in that. I've, I come to believe that, that God did good for me in sending Jesus Christ to die. That's so good that, that no matter what the season is, I'm going to do that. And it changes us. So here, here's where I want to leave you. Um, this image of walking with God, that's a paradigm of, of, of the call to return and to be with him. And it's, it's an image that helps us because sometimes we get ahead, sometimes we fall behind. God has placed eternity on our hearts, a, a sense that we should be with God, and, and yet, yet we get confused in the time. So, so how do we stay steady in these periods? Here's an idea, and it's, it's a bit of an illustration and not like an actual biblical command. And so if this is too weird or not useful, ignore it. <laughs> I'm trying to offer you something this week. Um, what is the speed at which you walk with God? Well, uh, start with 60 to 100 beats per minute. <laughs> That's probably where most of your, your heartbeat ranges. <laughs> um, and there are times of intensification. You know, there's something about us, you know, you know if you're going to exercise, why do you want to listen to music that's at 130 beats per minute? Because you're trying to get your heart beat up. <laughs> there, there's something about, um, there's an appropriate time to, uh, you know, to speeding up. And why do you do a breathing exercise before you go to bed so you can calm yourself down? Um, there are times and seasons and, and the times you're going to get anxious and it's going to get your heart rate up or you're going to get depressed and you're going to be down. What does it mean to walk faithfully with God? Well, think about that. There's a, there's a natural pace that we walk and it's a little bit different for each of us, but, but go through life and in your ups and downs, if, if you're down, realize God wants you to get up and walk with him. Don't, don't settle for that. So, so go, you don't need to run, but you need to just get up and, and stay with him. So stay, there's a tempo there. And if you're running ahead and getting away from God, God, God is saying, slow down, stay with me so you could hear me. And so think about this this week. Um, what I'm going to end with is um, I come across all these videos online of people rescuing animals. And I don't know if it's the algorithm, if I watched one and now that's all that comes up. Maybe you've not seen any of these, any of these videos, but I keep seeing videos come up of, of a deer whose antlers are stuck in a fence or some raccoon who put his head in a bucket. Now the bucket's on his head and he's running around uh, or, you know, or some, some um, you know, animal on the side of a river getting pulled in. And, and there's, there's video after video of human beings stepping in and trying to figure out how do I rescue this animal? And it's this odd thing because the animal is now in panic, in pain, and already doesn't have a good relationship with humanity. And so what does it look like for the human being to go in and rescue that animal? And, and I see these videos of human beings being kicked by the animals and the scratched and human beings getting tangled in the fences that they're getting cut up, cut up with and human beings jumping into these rivers that might drown them. You know, and I find myself, why are people showing these videos? Well, I think there's something in us that says, we know that human beings can, can do better than these videos where, you know, one deer watches a lion go in and kill an antelope. Um, there's something about humanity to say, well, we've got this sense of eternity, that, that there's more than just life on this earth. And, and, and there's a picture of, of ourselves saying, when, when I'm stuck, and I'm kicking and screaming, and I'm traumatized, and I'm in panic. Will God be so steadfast that, that he will come and he will stay with me, and, and he'll deal with my foolish testing and my complaining? Uh, will he come and rescue me? And, and the gospel says he will. And, and then there's something there to say, you know, in these videos, 
if a human being would do this for an animal that we have no obligation to, what do I owe that raccoon with the bucket on his head? Nothing. And yet if I'm, if I'm by instinct meant to go and help this animal, it, it shows something of that Genesis 1 vision of the nature of human dominion. <laughs> Power is given to us so that we could exercise it with wisdom and goodness. The confusion, the unraveling is when when the power is exercised in, in the place of justice where there's wickedness. I think these videos encourage us because they, they show us something of the original design for humanity, that we should be joyful, that we should do good. And in whatever way you're experiencing this time and season, I wanna say pursue joy, but if it's far from you, if you're not experiencing it, don't give up, God will bring it to you, but do good. Don't, don't give in to your despair, to your anger, to your frustration. God has made you for better than that. You have a past, but more than that, the gospel says you have a future and the future is not in your hands. It's in the hands of God who is unchanging. You, you have good days and bad days. Society, it's like a pendulum. But God is unchanging and that comforts us when we know that his plan is to, to bring the fullness of joy to us. And so be steadfast this week. Live by faith, hope in God. Let me pray for us. Our Father, we are often blown back and forth like the wind. We are creatures of instinct who, who do what we feel and then regret it. We do what we shouldn't do, even while we know we shouldn't. And yet you are steady and unchanging. And what's unchanging is your love and your mercy and your compassion and your plan to have a human being who you breathe life into and you give eternal life to. And so, Lord, we can but receive it by faith and with thanks. And so grant us that grace that by your spirit would we, we would see the good news announced and we would believe. And that would ready us for this hard season in whatever way any of us are suffering, that we would get up and do the good or we would step back and do the good as you define it. But help us not to get um, blown away by the wind, uh, but help us to be steady and faithful and to walk with you. And so Lord, be gracious and lead us this week, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.